Good morning. Ohio has better roads too, Brian. A lot better roads. <laughs> yeah. So, I just don't know what's wrong with Michigan roads. Well, I do know what's wrong. It's a big political thing, but we won't get into that here. <laughs> anyway, so sometimes I go home from church. Maybe you do this too sometimes, and you think, man, church just sucked today. And you know, coming from my perspective, it's really bad because I'm the guy that's supposed to try to not make it suck, but sometimes you just deliver an egg or it feels like it, and you think, God didn't show up today. And maybe you feel like that sometimes too. I mean, we come to the church with the expectation of encountering God, but sometimes it feels like God fails to show up. And it's not just the church. It's sometimes our devotional time or some other experience. You know, we say, God, I'm going to spend this time in prayer, and then God doesn't show up, it seems like. But this is what I struggle with sometimes, you know. I feel sort of like an inferior, like the red-headed stepchild. Is there a red-headed stepchild here? Good. That might be mean. Um, because I'm not emotional or ecstatic in my experiencing and following God. And as if those who get more emotional are experiencing God more, and then I sit here and I feel inferior, like, man, I wish I could experience God like that. But here's the truth of the matter. God is everywhere all of the time. And he doesn't need you or me, although if it's helpful to you, go ahead. But he doesn't need you or me to work ourselves up to an emotional state to experience him. Because that's, that would be really awkward if, say, you're at work, like you're a nurse, as Jessica is, and you're like, well, I want to experience God now, so I have to get really emotional and exuberant. No, God wants to experience him in our normal life. And it doesn't always have to be attached to emotionalism or exuberance. But then this raises the question regarding a time that we set aside, like those Sundays where I go home disappointed, or maybe you do too, and we don't just encounter him. If God is here, why don't we always feel him? If God is near, why don't we see him? I believe the fall lies with us, though, and not God. Maybe it's that we expect him to only be in the overly religious moments, like a church service. Or maybe it is, as I was talking about, we equate experiencing God with some emotional exuberance. But what we see is that we're sometimes so blinded, we're sometimes so distracted, we're sometimes so inwardly focused that we wouldn't recognize God, even if he was standing right in front of us. There's a story in Luke that takes place. This is a picture somebody took of it. And it takes place after Jesus had been crucified. Two of his followers were walking down a road talking about everything that had happened. And likely they were confused, sad, filled with doubt. You know, they expected Jesus to be the king of a revolution and take over the world, and then he died on the cross. You know, I'd be a person wondering, did I just waste all these years following Jesus? I would be weighing the wins and losses out of what I did and whether it was good use of my time. And then the resurrected Jesus came up to the two walking down the road, and he started talking with them. And you know what? They got excited and everything changed. No, that isn't what happened. They didn't even recognize him. And they talked about theological issues, and Jesus set them straight about the need for his death. But even then, they still didn't get it. 
Finally, they sat down to a meal together, and Jesus broke bread, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they realized that this had been Jesus with them all the time. And then that changed everything. And the parallels to our own lives, I think, are staggering. Though we may know the Bible, and we may know good doctrine, and we may know good theology, we may not know God. We know about God, but we may not know God. And when we know God, when we truly see Him, and when we truly encounter Him, like those guys on the road, it changes everything. It's the difference between a friend and a stalker. How many of you here have ever had a stalker? You have, Lindsay? We don't need to say in case they listen to us. Um, a stalker, a stalker will gather information about someone through observation. They may even know a lot about the person. I mean, today, a stalker could even stalk you even better with Facebook or anything else on the internet. But often a stalker avoids any real interaction. And if there's no friendship, it's just creepy and offensive. Well, it's probably creepy and offensive no matter what, even if there is a friendship. It probably ruins the friendship. A friendship, though, is more than knowledge. It's experience. It's interaction. And God does not just walk or stalk us from afar. He wants to befriend us. Granted, he's still God. He is still holy. But he's accessible. That's the beautiful thing about God. Like, it's this cool person in the school that we don't deserve to be friends with that wants to be friends with us. That's God. And he came down to earth to emphasize his accessibility. He washed people's feet. He hung on a cross. He wanted us to know that a living, vibrant relationship with him can be possible. He may be an all-powerful, all-holy God, but he's not a distant God. Our culture, we have this obsession mentality going on. It seems like people obsess over a lot of things these days. And there are certain shows, maybe movies, television shows, or maybe certain singers, like maybe me with the Avett Brothers, that people seem to be obsessed with. And you can tell, though, they're, they're worse than me because 75% of their social media updates are all about this thing that they're obsessed with. And some people are obsessed maybe with sports teams, and they watch every game, they listen to every interview, they read all the box sports, they, they can tell you the biographies of the people on their teams, and they cheer until they lose their voices. There was a special that documented the auction of the original copy of the rules of the game. And that's James Naismith. He, he published in 1981 for the game of basketball. It was two words back then. And the bidding went back and forth at this auction for the original document. And eventually, it was purchased for the measly sum of $4.3 million. That's right, $4 million for a document that then they would just put behind some pretty glass. And after winning, the guy who purchased it said this. This is what makes this story so flabbergasting. I will never do anything as significant or satisfying as this. You just bought a document for $4.3 million. How is that significant or satisfying? I don't get it. But that's what obsession will do to us. Obsession makes us think things are important that really aren't. And that obsession mindset, as wacky and as extreme as it may seem, I think is given to us for a reason. 
It isn't that I should emulate their obsession over a document that was made to describe how to play basketball or emulate the, their obsession over a favorite show or emulate the way they obsess over a game. But we were given the ability to obsess for one reason, and that is to obsess over God. That desire to obsess over someone is given to us by God in order for us to develop a better relationship with God. We just often misdirect it and we point it at the wrong things, but God gave us it to point it at Him. And those people obsessed with shows and sport teams, they're thinking about that thing almost all the time. It drives their lives. And I wonder, what are we obsessed with? Are we workaholics, constantly thinking about what is going on at our jobs? Are we obsessed with our appearance, constantly worried about how we look? Are we obsessed with money, constantly wondering about our finances? Are we obsessed with being connected, constantly checking our social media in order, or our phone text? Are we obsessed with fitness, constantly measuring what we take in food-wise and constantly measuring how much exercise we do? And, and none of those things, I think, are inherently bad by themselves. But if we focus on those things, something else, or nothing at all, I think it would be useful to develop a desire to be with God like people focus on those things. The Apostle Paul captures this desire. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his blessing wait sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead I like the way the message says this passage the message uses more words because it takes two slides but the very credentials these people are waving around on some as something special I'm tearing them up and throwing them out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all things I once thought were so important are gone from my life, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. To provide some context to this passage, Paul was just defending himself against those who thought he wasn't Jewish enough to actually go around sharing the gospel. They thought that Paul just wasn't a good Christian, that he had to follow the Jewish regulations better, especially circumcision. And since Paul was not speaking that Jewish message, Paul wasn't worthy to be an evangelist. 
But Paul then rattled off his very accomplished background, basically demonstrating to the Philippians that he was the best of the best when it came to Jewishness. But then he disowns and disavows all that prestigiousness that he had from his life before. He used the marketplace terms of loss and profit, saying that all this stuff he listed off would be like losing his shirt on the stock market if he didn't know God, gain Christ, and be found in him. He even used the most vulgar word found in the Bible to describe his accomplishments. The passage here translated it as rubbish. The message translated it as dog dung. But it's a nastier word for that thing that we just won't say in a sermon. But why would Paul denigrate his past and his identity in such a way? And he was really passionate about it, he even swore. Why would, why would he turn his back on who he was? Because he wanted something different. Paul was willing to sacrifice all his spiritual accomplishments to follow Christ, who was what really mattered. And sometimes our accomplishments can be just as much as a distraction as anything else in our life. Sometimes those things we think make us great are what prevents us from experiencing the one who is great. It reminds me of a story of Pat Tillman. He was an excellent linebacker at Arizona State University. And in 1997, Pat Tillman was voted the Pac-10 Defensive Player of the Year. And then in the 1998 NFL Draft, Tillman was selected by the Arizona Cardinals. And he played safety for them. He was well on his way to becoming a quite good NFL player. But then 9-11 happened, and it touched his heart. And in May 2002, eight months after 9-11, he completed his, this football season, and he retired. He turned down a contract of $3.6 million over three years from the Arizona Cardinals to enlist in the U.S. Army. And he joined the Army Rangers, and he served several tours in combat before, unfortunately, dying in the mountains in Afghanistan. But regardless of your views on war, you have to respect Pat Tillman's commitment to his beliefs. But we're still left to wonder, I think, why would a guy that had all that going for him give it up? Yet this is the same mentality that Paul has. He saw something that he wanted to be, and he gave up all the great accomplishments he had in order to pursue it. It's the same reason that Paul calls his pedigree worthless. Paul wants to make clear that you don't know Christ. If you don't, then nothing is of any value. We quickly celebrate people who surrender their all for our nation, but I don't know if we, even as a church, are quick to celebrate people who surrender all for our God. If you look throughout the Bible, you will find the greatest people of the Old Testament. They modeled, both men and women, a yearning to know God. Psalm 42 just reflects that. He says, as a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So when Paul says he would leave everything behind just to have an intimate relationship with God, he meant it. He wasn't exaggerating. He actually did it. He was obsessed with God. And this knowledge of God that Paul saw was not something to be found in a book or a sermon. Look at what Paul said in verse 10 there at the bottom, well, in the middle of the bottom. 
He says, I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. How do you get to know someone? You live life with them. You celebrate their victories. You comfort them in their defeats. You learn from their mistakes and their insights. And if you want to experience God, if you want to experience the power of the resurrection, you must then first participate in his sufferings, as Paul says here. If you are serious about growing in Christ, if you really mean it when you say you want to know God more intimately, if you want to experience a resurrected life here and now, if God is your obsession, then your life will contain this element of sacrifice. Sacrifice of yourself, sacrifice of your own goals, sacrifice of all the things that you thought gave you value, sacrifice of all that is good for the one who is great. We will never fully experience the blessing which God promises unless we shift our obsession off of ourselves, off of our accomplishments, off of our desires, off of the things of this world and the things that this world markets to us and says we should be enjoying, and instead we focus all on seeking God. Because what I'm talking about and what Paul is talking about is not a casual, passive thing. What I am talking about is a singular focus on kingdom things. If it is your desire to experience God's presence regularly, to grow more in the knowledge of God, to impact the kingdom of darkness that surrounds us with the kingdom of beauty and light of God, then get ready because as Paul says, sacrifice is the way that that happens. You will experience amazing things, but it'll take some work, some sacrifice on your part. But the good news is that the accomplishment has been achieved and the work has been done by Jesus and he freely gives that opportunity to all of us who want to tap into it. There was a man named Brother Lawrence who lived in the 1600s. Brother Lawrence was not an educated man, but he worked in the kitchen of a monastery until his death at about the age of 80. And he gave us one of the most important writings about, ever produced about the topic of developing one's relationship with God. It's simply called The Practice of the Presence of God. You see, Brother Lawrence had read many manuals on how to grow spiritually, and many of them had rigid, set, scheduled rituals that you should do to grow closer to God. Things like regular prayer and devotion times. And though he did them faithfully, he did not feel that he was growing any closer to God. And so he dispensed with all the formal practices and changed his mindset and his obsession rather than his schedule. He attempted to create a habitual state of communion with God. He transformed even the most mundane chores that he had to do in the kitchen into the glorious experiences of heaven. Listen to what he says. I resolved to give my all for God's all. I renounced everything that was not God. And I began to live as if there was none but God and I in the world. At all times, every hour, every minute, even at my busiest times, I drove away from my mind everything that was capable of interrupting my thought of God by often repeating these acts. They became habitual. And the presence of God becomes something that comes naturally to us. And this is something maybe we struggle with. We're not constantly doing overtly spiritual tasks. Like Brother Lawrence, Lawrence was in a kitchen. 
We find ourselves at our workplaces or in our neighborhoods doing menial things a lot. But the glory of God is that he can be worshipped even in the mundane. He is there transforming our normal routine into something wonderful. We just have to see him. We just have to see him all the time at whatever it is we're doing. And I think it starts, though, with considering all is lost. That it means all the obsessions that we falsely place on all the wrong things we're going to discard and we're going to just start obsessing with him. Because when we are obsessed with something, it is constantly on our minds. We dream, we fantasize, we want nothing more than to exist in that place of things we obsess. So regardless of what we are doing, our minds are on that one thing we obsess over. And whatever it is we obsess over, it totally changes us. And God is saying, obsess over me. It takes some creativity, I think, and practice, as Brother Lawrence talks about here. The more we do it, the easier it becomes. But we have to shift the thinking that all the things we're doing in our life are then an act of worship to God. And when we do this every day, and all the relationships with people we like and we don't like, and we transform them into acts of service to God, as if we were doing them for God himself, then we are on the right track, and that is when we will grow spiritually. We need to realize that we are constantly in God's presence. A.W. Tozer writes this, God tells us to make a sanctuary of our thoughts in which he can dwell. Is your mind a sanctuary for the thoughts of God? Or not just the thoughts of God. Is your mind a sanctuary for God? Or do we allow all these thieves to come into our mind and steal that which God wants to give us? Is there space in your head for God to reside? Or is it cluttered with all the junk of this world? Do you seek him as a deer pants for water? Do you consider all your accomplishments, no matter how great, second to knowing him? You know, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're here every Sunday you come. And maybe you leave Sundays, though, not feeling fed. But the key to getting the most out of a church gathering is to be spiritually nourishing ourselves throughout the week. Because even if we get recharged and filled up on Sundays, as I pray happens every week for all of you, if we aren't filling ourselves up throughout the week, we'll come back on Sundays on empty. And I want us all to remain filled with the power of the Spirit all of the time. And this won't come from a once-a-week pit stop at church. It comes from practicing the presence of God throughout our weeks. But you not, may not know where to start. You don't know how to go about doing it. Most of the time we hear that we need to read our Bibles and pray more. As if there's a direct correlation to the amount of time we read to how much we feel God. And those are great, powerful practices that have been proven time and time again to help people grow closer to God. But we err when we turn spirituality and spiritual growth into some 10-step program where if you do these steps, you'll get it right. That doesn't work for everyone. And many of us need to do something different to connect with God more. It's not as though we can drop all our responsibilities of this life and join a monastery. 
Instead, we got to just take the monastery mentality into the life we live wherever we find ourselves. God tells us to make a sanctuary of our thoughts in which he can dwell. And some of us need to start doing that today. We need to declutter our minds so that God can speak. We need to recommit to following God with every ounce of who we are. Or we may need to respond to God's call to have a relationship with him and accept Christ's love and forgiveness for the first time. So as we sang our closing song today, I challenge you to respond as you see fit. Either come forward in prayer or just commit to seeking God where you are. If you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing. Can I have uh, Betsy, Julie, can you come up to Betsy and Julie for prayer? If you have anything you need prayed over, just come forward. And let's close with the word of prayer. Father, I just thank you for your presence and how it's always there. And I just pray that you would open our eyes to see it. Help us to live in that presence daily. Help us to be the people you call us to be. And I thank you for all the blessings you give us, all the accomplishments we've been able to do with our lives. But I just pray that we would place those in the right priority and that we would place knowing you and being yours is more important than any of those things. Help us to surrender all. And here's something we pray. 